Considered. I'm your host, Sarah Elton Contemporary Slam Considered provides high-level analysis of issues of concern to contemporary Islam and Muslims with leading experts in their field. My guest today is Leonard Schwartz, who is the author of numerous books of criticism and poetry, including A Flicker at the Edge of Things, Language as Responsibility, Gnostic Blessing, The Tower of Diverse Shores, A Message Back and Other Furors, At Element, The, Li- the Library of Seven Recordings, and If. He's also the host of the radio program Cross-Cultural Poetics, which features interviews with poets, thinkers, performers, and artists from all over the world. He teaches poetics at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Today, we're talking about his latest book, The New Babel, Towards a Poetics of the Mideast Crisis, which was released from the University of Arkansas Press in 2016. The New Babel evokes and investigates, from a Jewish-American perspective, and in the forms of poetry, essays, and interviews, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, America's involvement as both perpetrator and victim of events in the Middle East and Afghanistan, and the multiple ways that poetics can respond to political imperatives. Also joining us today is Kathleen Eman, who's a professor of philosophy at the Evergreen State College. Kathleen earned her PhD in philosophy from Vanderbilt in 2009. She specializes in aesthetics and philosophy of art at the juncture of social and political thought, otherwise known as specializing in Kant, Hegel, Marx, and Freud. Kathleen wrote a review published in Talisman of Leonard Schwartz's latest book, so she joins us today to add to the conversation. Thank you, Leonard and Kathleen. Great to be here with you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. Thank Great you. Great to be here with you, Leonard. Yeah, this Ditto, is fun. Ditto, Kathleen. <laughs> yeah. We're also colleagues, um, and um, it's just exciting to be able to talk to you about your work. Um, and I, I really enjoyed your book, Leonard. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yes. That's, that's, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> it was wonderful to read. So... Let's begin with, can you explain your concept of the Tower of Babel in this book? Yes. Uh, uh, again, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's a real honor to be on your program. And this is a book that uh, does address itself towards what I call a poetics of the Mideast crisis. By poetics, I mean that the book includes uh, poems, essays, and interviews as opposed to just poems, that it's a creative uh, the, the 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 poetic thought vis-a-vis the poem, conversational thought vis-a-vis the interview, and propositional thought vis-a-vis the essay. And all of those pertain to the question you asked about the concept of Babel or the Tower of Babel uh, in the book. We know, of course, that's a biblical uh, um, image, the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, it also is what uh, September 11th, 2001 felt like to me as a New Yorker at that time, uh, the day the the, the towers fell, and a vast manipulated confusion of language uh, followed after. So that the question then becomes, as a, someone working in, with language as, as poet or essayist or as conversant, um, what kinds of things can one do to make language, uh, to redeem Babel, to make Babel into a source of, of energy and richness and wealth, as opposed to vast manipulated confusion? Uh, language is a kind of Babel, and in the First piece in the book, uh, the the Tower of uh, the New Babel. I try and make some kind of argument or some kind of suggestion for the way in which the very confusion of language, uh, as opposed to the communicability of language, can become a source of resistance and energy. Okay, so 
there are a number of kind of foundational philosophical questions that you bring up in the book. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of start at the heart of one of those questions, sure. which is kind of the, the perennial question of what is the role of aesthetic production in the context of war, destruction, um, and horror? And, you know, um, so basically you channel Adorno in your discussion of the war in Afghanistan. You have a long piece about Madhu, which is a place in Peshawar. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh Is that right? It's in Afghanistan as opposed to the, uh, to, to uh, Pakistan, Pakistan, but it's on the border. border On the border, right. Okay. And, and you say, um, so again, channeling Adorno after Madhu to write poetry is barbaric. Mm. So can we just kind of start right there? I mean, what, you know. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that mm-hmm. sentiment mm-hmm. Um, and concern yeah. that aesthetics in the time of war is somehow inappropriate, even obscene. Yeah. yeah. So, sure. Let me respond to that. I mean, Adorno is very interesting to think about here, and I think about him a lot, and I, I know uh, Dr. Amen thinks about him a lot, yes. too, in terms of his his positions on polit- uh, the the. the politics of the poem or political poetry, political art. Very famously, he opines that Beckett is more powerfully, powerful politically than is Brecht, uh, although Brecht addresses himself directly to political circumstances. Uh, Beckett creates an imaginary space on the page that gives us more leverage on political circumstance, uh, according to Adorno, right? And so that that Brecht gets tied up in reproducing the very structure he's attempting to undermine or subvert in a way that the artist who creates an imaginative space on the page uh, uh, is has the possibility of liberating us from uh, the political knots we'd otherwise be tied into. So there's that position of Adorno's, but there's also the position after Auschwitz there can be no poetry, right? That uh, uh, to aestheticize the hara is is necessarily to uh, short. To, is necessarily to represent or reproduce that which cannot be represented or or reproduced. Now Adorno doesn't stick to that position, and then there's Paul Ceylon, the poet whose poetry and its complexity sort of undermines that position, but as a provocation on Adorno's part to say that we've reached the limits of what art can represent, I still think that becomes an important statement. Of course, I distort it. I turn it to, after Madhu, uh, there can be no poetry, and I need to uh, say a little bit about that distortion, of course, but maybe it would help if I read that section yes. from uh, yeah. from the New Babel, and we could yeah. talk about that. So the New Babel is in seven sections. It begins with section zero, uh, uh, perhaps inevitably, section zero. Uh, I'm going to skip section zero and section one and read uh, section two, okay, you, which is on page eight, eight um, since that's where you direct my question. Section two begins with a quote from uh, the New York Times. Uh, Barry Barak, a reporter for the New York Times, writing December 15th, 2001, Madhu, Afghanistan. Uh, And here's the quote. Perhaps someday there will be a reckoning for this tiny village of 15 houses, all of them obliterated into splintered wood and dust by American bombs. United States military officials might explain why 55 people died here on December 1st. But more likely, Madhu will not learn whether the bombs fell by mistake or on purpose, and the matter will be forgotten amid the larger consequences of war. It has left an anonymous hamlet with anonymous people buried in anonymous graves. 
America's own anti-Taliban allies were horrified, claiming the targeting had been mistaken and that hundreds of innocents had been killed. It was, quote, like a crime against humanity, said Haji Mohammed Zaman, a military commander in the region. Again, that's Barry Barak, The New York Times, December 15th, 2001, Madhu, Afghanistan. Madhu's farmers are people in pieces. They've become their own fertilizer. Assuming the rains come, we did them a favor, suggests a cartoon version of Secretary of Defense R. Big laugh. But there isn't any need for such a cartoon. We've already firmly established the concept of collateral damage. He who sees with his heart, as Paz would have it, sees Madhu as himself. And who can't see Madhu with his heart? Men with fossil minds, with oily tongues, suggests the cartoonist. Every face a mask, every house a ruin of mud brick and wood. Whose sisters were killed? Collateral damage can't ever say beforehand. Terrorists don't target specific sisters. The American attack came in four separate waves. After Madhu, to write poetry is barbaric, Theodore Adorno. We've yet to find their bodies, many layers to this rubble, and now we live with this mystery, saith the elder Mr. Gull, Madhu resident, though he might be speaking of Manhattan. Sorrowful old man, white beard, furrowed forehead, then Piagol, young man, bitter-eyed, I blame the Arabs, then amended his own statement. I blame the Arabs and the Americans. They are all terrible people. They are all the worst in the world. Most of the dead were children. Fragrance, birdsong, wheat fields, Mr. Barak reporting two weeks after Madhu's apocalypse, harvesting scrap metal from bombs, hopes of surviving winter. Beyond anecdote sounds a hymn we can only hum, humble in our making the birds scribbling like authors in a startling ephemera of air. Quote, walking in the vegetable patch late at night, I was startled to find the severed head of my daughter lying on the ground. Her eyes were upturned, gazing at me, ecstatic-like. From a distance it appeared to be a stone hallowed with light, as if cast there by the Big Bang. What on earth are you doing? I said, you look ridiculous. Ridiculous. Some boys buried me here, she said sullenly. Araki Yasasada, doubled flowering, the foothills surrounding Hiroshima, December 25th, 1945. Craters, tractor carcass, dead sheep, urn crushed to disc, unendurable, unintended, un-American axe Americana, far from Mecca, in Madhu, Torobora, one undamaged room. Anger cannot be buried. Prayer is perfect when he who prays remembers not that he is praying. Everything dead trembles, Kandinsky. Note, email the reporter, ask if there were ever rows of poplars. Moonstone sucked into the atmosphere of dwarfed arts. No hero, but also no Nero. The half that faces us is full tonight. As the Kosataki Upanishad has it, the breath of life is one. The word Madhu is a transcription of a Pashto name the reporter must have sounded out. In English, then, Madhu. In English, the name 
Madu derives from an old Scottish word meaning my dove. So that's section two of, of the new Babel, and in terms of Babel, the process or project by which Madu, the name of a village in Afghanistan, can turn into a dove uh, if the tongue is playing with sounds and the, the sounds transfer from one semantic system to another and the ruins uh, ascend into a dove. Just the discovery that Madu in, in old Scottish meant, meant, meant my dove. Um, it becomes one thing as opposed to another thing. There are other levels of Babel in the in the text, right? In that I'm basing my attempt to reconstruct what happened in that village in Torabora on the basis of a newspaper report. And certain sections of the poem that are in quotes are only the language are the language of the newspaper report, and you sift through the language of the newspaper report to try and arrive at the event. Um, you know, Norbezi Philip in her book Zong is the great example of attempting to 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 do a project like that, where the Zong was a, a famously a slave ship that that dumped its cargo, the slaves, into the into the sea um, for insurance purposes, uh, so that they could be indemnified later once the ship got into trouble. And then she writes the poem on the basis of the legal documents, or which are all about the insurance question, in order to try and get back to the nightmare, in order to get back to the, the, the murders, in order to get back to the crime, but by sifting through the available language, which is only in the document, only in the legal document pertaining to insurance. All I have is the document from the newspaper to work with as a writer, as a poet, to try and sift through and find some sense between the cracks of what might actually have happened. In the process, of course, one fictionalizes, right? Um, in, in the process, of course, visa, in terms of one's own positionality, unless we're completely committed to the, that only a poetry of witness or poetry of direct experience is valid, one necessarily is fictionalizing. And so when I bring in my hero, the Rocky Osasada, and I'm comparing early on in the poem, I compare what I experienced in New York, in New York uh, during 9-11, uh, 2001 to Hiroshima, or a little Hiroshima, in that the civilian target has been substituted for a military target, no greater event than Hiroshima in terms of obliterating, obliterating that distinction between a civilian and military target. In any event, when I bring in Araki Sasada as a Hiroshima poet, that of course is a fictional poet. It's a poet that was invented by an American poet who wrote a whole poetry from that perspective. So I'm suggesting that there's a necessity to, as, as writer, as poet, to also create new spaces on the page as opposed to imagine one's ability to report reality in some direct way. Mm. Problematic, I understand. <clears throat> yes. Okay, let's... <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that with Kathleen. Can you do... What do you think? <laughs> yeah, too, I think. Yes, Kathleen. <laughs> I mean, your essay is um, incredibly... Incredibly dense on um, <laughs> precisely that point, actually. Yeah, it's thick. So. That's right. Um, yeah. And now I'm thinking between my essay and everything that Leonard just shared with us. Um, and, of course, back to Adorno and the question of poetry after Auschwitz and poetry after Madhu. Um, and trying to figure out exactly <laughs> where with all of that I want to start. And I think... I'll start with a phrase that Leonard just used early on, and so you, right before you, you sort of framed that section two for us, 
um, talking about Adorno and the fact that poetry can liberate us to a certain degree from the knots that violence or war sort of ties us in, right? We sort of become bound to the real in a way that it seems inescapable, um, right? Like how, how could you write poetry? And when you were talking about that, I was thinking about a lecture that I heard recently from Judith Butler, and she was talking about um, this recent publication, 25 Poems from Guantanamo. Mm. Do you know it? No, I don't know. No. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, um, I don't know if it's the only 25 poems that made it out past the U.S. Department of Defense censorship, um, but I do know that, according to her, um, 25,000 lines of poetry from one detainee alone were either destroyed or entirely censored, at least. Mm. A couple of people got put together 25 poems that made it past the censors. Um, and in talking about their work, the Department of Defense said that poetry presents a special risk to national security mm. because of its content and its format, which is like wow. really funny, but funny, not funny, right? Yeah. Like not funny. Yeah. And Butler was talking about the fact that almost all of the 25 poems include lines where the poets are marveling at their writing of poetry. Like, what am I doing? Like, I'm in Guantanamo. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. um, and there is something sort of so useless about poetry mm -hmm. in the face of incredible violence and especially, right, sort of incarceration, mm -hmm. right? And threat um and at the same time so now i'm thinking also about that uselessness as part of what it can sort of point up to us about ourselves and our kind of finitude the finitude with which we have to respond to everything mm -hmm. um and i'm now i'm thinking about hegel i told you this was going to happen i'm just going to talk about yes. hegel and kant and marx yeah. and freud but right and this idea that something like absolute knowing or the highest form of knowing is being able to live with and even create hospitality around the finitude of our response in spite of the fact that we recognize the infinity of the demands coming at us. And those infinities might be demands to know, so science as like the whole world demanding to be known, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also really specifically these sort of claims that someone else's, I mean, right, so anyway, this is- I um, mean, yeah, within ahead. that myth of Babel uh, and the uh, biblical context, there's, there's a kind of indictment of language. It would have been better, there was this one language, and now there's the confusion of tongues that right. follows. And the counter-argument of the new Babel is the confusion of tongues by which a ruined, ruined model can turn into my dove, or by which we're now faced with questions of translation. What did those Guantanamo poets write? How were those texts translated? Presumably they weren't writing in English or Spanish. They were writing in, they were writing in Arabic or they were writing in Pashto or they were writing in uh, Uyghur or they were, you know, so, uh, so then, that, and, and then, then you've got these Department of Defense people trying to translate that. And if they're translating it, then are they making it more, uh, the, the dangers they see at play in those poems? Are they releasing the genies from the bottle, et cetera? Mm -hmm. I can, all kinds of questions about the way language turns against uh, or, or it is uncontainable uh, seem to be uh, suggested by that example, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and that uncontainability of language to do exactly what you didn't expect it to do yeah. uh, is an argument for aesthetic maximalism when it comes to language. I know I'm going to anger a certain number of readers if I compare Madhu to Auschwitz. They're two very, very different events and things, but sometimes the provocation is necessary. 
That's actually what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, there's a kind of, there's one of many threads in the book is you compare Madhu to Auschwitz. (laughs) You then have an interview at the end of the book with Aron Shepti, uh, a leading Israeli poet and activist uh, who is very critical of the occupation. Um, And, you know, I'm wondering, and then you you, you have your own positionality as an American Jewish person. How does this all... You know, I mean, <clears throat> I'm also hesitating to ask you this question because I, I'm i sensing that you don't want to bring yourself in as a direct narrator of these events. And yet I'm going to ask you anyway. Sure. Yeah. Which would be, and you're going to ask me. How what? does this all yeah. tie together? Where uh-huh. where are you in uh-huh. this? What uh-huh. is, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And can I add to your question? Please, please. Which, yeah. Just to make it yeah. even more difficult, maybe please. for you to answer, Leonard. <laughs> yeah. Is there a way you can make it help as difficult us? as possible? Yeah, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll do my best, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering if your own phrase, transcendental mobility, yeah. might be the right phrase to talk about all of these turns you're making. Right. So if you could help us understand sort of what transcendental mobility might mean mm-hmm. and how to make turns. I mean, right, angering people in all directions, I think, yeah. is my guess, right? Yeah. The comparison of. Madhu with Auschwitz right. is making people mad all over the place if they know about it. Yes. Right. 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 And transcendental right. mobility, I mean, maybe, so you have a whole section of the book on this concept, and really it's the idea that the transcendental is is historicized and particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. That's right. Okay. okay. Now, this is a difficult question. That's <laughs> a, there are okay. several mountains there to, yeah. to try and climb, and uh, mm-hmm. but I, uh, it's not like you'd, did this to me all by ourselves. I did this to myself as well. <laughs> <did>. So, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, so sure. So sure. There, there is positionality in the book. I do take a position. Uh, uh, I take a, a political position, uh, and that political position is uh, uh, largely in reference to the writing of Martin Buber. Now, Martin Buber is known for his "I and Thou" and the direct address between the "I and Thou" and the kind of elevation to di- of dialogue. To um, to to nearly the status of the divine, right? That that address between the I and the U, in which which is reciprocal, and which and uh, which both are ends. Um, but his political writing is also very interesting because Martin Buber applied that notion of I thou I you to uh, Jews and Palestinians. Uh, in, in his political writing, he speaks about. Uh, the necessity of creating a space. He's a Zionist, and the necessity of creating a space or Jewish homeland. Uh, and then he also uh, just talks about the necessity of creating a space uh, or preserving a space uh, for the you, which are the thou, which are the Palestinians. So very early on in the 30s, and by even as late as 1947, he's writing about a, a single binational state solution, one state solution that will have an Arab majority. And this is from a Zionist thinker, yeah, a deep Zionist very, thinker. Which doesn't sound like what we consider Zionists today. Exactly. Well, right? this is my point. The, yeah. Another form of Zionism won out. But if you look at the history yeah. of Zionism and you look at Buber's position, he's making an argument that more or less equates to a particular Palestinian position now or a particular progressive Jewish position now, which is you need a one-state solution mm-hmm. and we're just going to have to give up on the notion of a Jewish majority 
in that state uh, in order to maintain its democratic nature. Uh, and that's really at this point the no two-state solution. Buber's not calling for a two-state solution. He's calling for a one-state solution in a way that uh, is uh, anathema to most current Zionist thinkers. And so this is a reminder that even within the Zionist tradition, there was a position that held out that the only solution was a one-state solution. So and the book. Rent. Uh, and Arendt yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Arendt has a critical mm-hmm. attitude towards Buber. They're two different thinkers, and uh, Arendt is, uh, uh, well, that's another issue, I think, that, that the, the argument between Arendt and Buber. But um, uh, so I do take a kind of theoretical position, though, in that a number of the essays refer back to Buber and uh, make the claim that this is a kind of uh, contribution poetics can make by comparing the poetry of Darwish to Ceylon, as I do in one essay in the book, or thinking through the notion of dialogue that Buber is working with in my own radio work in the interviews in the book with Arno Shaptai, as you cite, with the political philosopher Michael Hart and with the African-American poet Amiri Baraka. Um, so that's part of, I think, what was in the question, whether or not I'm there in the book. I'm there in the book propositionally as a thinker uh, or taking a position. Uh, as poet, of course, you have to be open uh, to all kinds of material that's passing through you. As a poet, your job is to evacuate your personality as much as possible. It's never impossible to do that entirely, but to evacuate your personality as much as possible. So the voice of Pio Gull or the voice of uh, Rumi or the voice of Dante or the voice of the guy sitting on the bus next to you can pass through you. Uh, filtered, of course, by one's own sensibility, but nonetheless uh, an act of language. It's the voice of the poem, not the voice of the poet, that is really uh, uh, significant, I think, at least in the kind of poetry I would aspire to or the kind of poetry I'd want to read. And then conversationally, as someone interviewing the the people I've spoken, I think I'm there as a as a as a person asking questions, which is all I really can do, not knowing anything, uh, ask ask questions. So I don't know. Does that respond in some way to the? I want to come back to the transcendental in a moment, but the respond to the the way in which the uh, flesh and blood Leonard Schwartz is present in the book, at least by taking a political position. The notion of the transcendental uh, uh, as one could gloss it in Kant or Hegel or Husserl uh, uh, is is some sense of leverage on the personal ego, on the personal self. Uh, con- traditionally, it means a univer- necessary and universal set of cre- preconditions on the basis of which perception might be possible. And when I talk about transcendental mobility, I'm trying to get uh, get away from uh, universality, certainly, necessity, possibly, uh, but still maintain some sense of uh, a way in which language allows us to move from personal experience towards a certain impersonality, uh, a certain impersonality on the basis of which you can hear those other voices or have access to forms of perception that I wouldn't personally as a body or a particular being have access to otherwise. Um, And so I think uh, the necessity of the Palestinian-Israeli situation uh, is that, is the capacity to see with deep empathy from the eyes of the other. That's not a given. That requires an act of imagination in order to do that, an act of transcendental imagination, I want to say, to do that. And uh, that's also what's necessary to poetic thinking.
the capacity to, you know, as Rambo put it in the Lettre de Voyant in the, in the 19th century, I is someone else. Uh, I is, it's not, it's, it's wrong to say I is being, uh, it's wrong to say I think, rather, I is being thought. Um, he has it, don't blame the wood if it wakes up a violin. I update that to don't blame the plastic if it wakes up a cell phone. Uh, that there's something of the self as a material, but if you tune that material to proper resonance, uh, it's going to, it's going to, if you, it is attuned to a proper resonance, it's going to pick up on the voices of others. So can I ask about this idea of the transcendental self as, I mean, I'm imagining, right, so don't blame the plastic that wakes up as this particular thing, right? Don't blame the self, which is less than nothing, maybe before it becomes something, right? I'm thinking about the, for example, what all of your, the three interviews in the book have in common, which is some, I think it's in, in the one with Michael Hart that you push him maybe to talk about the idea of sort of a, a mixture. What, what was it? A mixture at the center. That's not the right phrase. Uh, right. That we are, we are sort of multiple before we're one, mm-hmm. right? The okay. idea that, uh-huh. um, I guess I'm just trying to think about that in relationship to this question of a sort of flesh and blood, mm-hmm. you with a Jewish American identity taking a position with respect to also, uh, you know, something that's clearly a question for anyone, yeah. right? In America, I guess it's uh-huh. especially a question for Jewish Americans, right? right? But it's also in some funny way, not quite our question because it's also over somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. And there's just something about the multiplicity involved there and the sort of mixture that precedes your arriving to the question yeah. at all to include, for example, the history of American violence, which right. comes up in the book as sort of a place of kind of metonymic slippage between Right, the history of slavery, for example, mm-hmm. with right the bombing in New York, with yeah. the John Brown's body at Harper's Ferry, all of these sort of mm-hmm. metonymic nodes that you can move through mm-hmm. in order to access something that, in fact, right clearly, you're not making an argument like right. This is an uncausal argument from one end to the other. But am I moving yeah, in a I, direction I, that's? I think it's a series of suggestions. I mean, there is the one section in the poem, the Apple Anyone Sonnets, where I, I set myself the task of writing a series of poems using only English words that were derived from Arabic. Uh, and there the suggestion is, yes, we have these different, uh, there's no question, we have different positionalities, different subjectivities. One of us, uh, one person may be uh from Kansas, another person may be from from uh, Peshawar, but uh, the fact is, if we're speaking English, we're also speaking Arabic. That is to say, there are all these borrow words, there are all these words that pass from Arabic into English, that such that you can barely name a piece of fruit, uh, that were dependent in all these expressivities on the borrowings from the Arabic words. And so rather than making some kind of... Um, uh, shrill set of pronouncements there, I want to sort of demonstrate that the clash of civilizations is a bogus notion, that that the two languages are, and therefore the two cultures are intertwined and mutually dependent in, in terms of ordinary speech. One of the words that was most exciting for me in terms of doing the research on that was uh, tabby, the word tabby, as in a tabby cat, uh, which I use in the poem, right? And According to at least the etymologies I was reading, there's a neighborhood in Baghdad, Altabia, Altabia, which uh, where they've been weaving tapestries uh, and making carpets for I don't know 500 years, 600 years, 700 years. That has a particular pattern, 
that we recognize now in the tabby cat. So when every time a tabby cat walks into a room, I, I, I think of Baghdad, I think of El Tapia. That sense of mobility and flexibility in the language, identity politics will always lead us to a kind of fixed, fast, and frozen set of positionalities, whereas Babel or language is fluid and in process, and all of a sudden there's a relationship between my pet cat and a neighborhood in Baghdad that maybe just got bombed the day before, uh, which produces, uh, um, I'm related to that neighborhood once I, once I see that my cat is, is actually related to it by, by way of word. That's the argument, at least, of for poetry, the argument of poetry. Right, that... that's your argument. This is a conversation we've had mm-hmm. a lot recently, mm. um, which I've really appreciated. Um, for me, the era that we're in now has caused me to revisit my usual distrust of identity politics for reasons that I've explained to you in yes. other settings. Um, so I actually wanted to open up that question mm-hmm. a little bit. Kathleen writes in her essay, um, she she says, in his speaking of your work, of course, in his opening essay, Schwartz positions the work vis-a-vis the friendship and then the rupture between Denise Levertov and Robert Duncan, a friendship that breaks down over the question of poetry's relation to the Vietnam War. As far it seems as poetry is concerned, Schwartz sides with Duncan, that the task of the poet is to imagine evil, not to oppose it, claiming that Duncan was responsible for the fall of the friendship, but also right about the larger point. Mm. So you do take a position I do take a position there. Very clearly. That's true. And, uh, you know, I... I respect that position. I also want to think about it in the in terms of the very unique moment that we are in now um, and also think about it um, in the context of your interview with Amiri Baraka and uh, maybe ways that he nuances the identity politics question. But, uh, I mean, briefly, if I can state the counter-argument, Please. it seems to me that in an age in which... Uh, well, when you have forces in power that are explicitly enacting policies against groups of people based on their identities, it's it's. I can understand the. I can understand the poet wanting to circumvent that speech act, um, in the way that you kind of described the tabby cat, mm-hmm. and I also fret about the consequences of ignoring what's happening, ignoring the form of the assault that is happening. I could say more, yeah, but no, I, I will let you respond to uh, that. Maybe, and Kathleen. Uh, so. Yeah. Do you want to respond? for? Because I mean, you did write about this in a really powerful way, and I thought in, in your piece the whole question of the, uh, the, whole, the, the notion that consciousness is non-self-identical Mm-hmm. And that it's only if we recognize the way in which consciousness is non-self-identical, is never the same as itself, that it, it uh, that we can refrain from turning consciousness into an object, uh, which is what uh, it's the objectification and the locatability of those Mexicans or those Muslims or or those Jews, for that matter, that 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 uh, turns uh, fellow citizens into into targets, right? Um, the the notion of the non-self-identical, so powerful in Adorno, I think there in Hegel as well, in terms of any thesis is going to break apart into its dialectical 
components pretty quickly. It's, it's non-self-identical. It's never the same as itself. It's how we distinguish between human beings and objects or human beings and things, right? And so the danger of identity politics, or excuse me, to start off with your friends, the danger uh, with the Trump administration is the targeting of specific beings on the basis of specific characteristics that become uh, absolutely synonymous with their identity. Now, the question is, is the response to that uh, um, uh, a kind of um, reification of the very criticism that's being made? Is it a kind of accidental reproduction of the very criticism that's being made? It seems to me if I were being targeted, camouflage might be a more suitable response. I mean, if I'm really being targeted as X, uh, do I run out into the street and say I'm X? Or do I create some kind of camouflage. Uh, and and doesn't poetry, doesn't language, doesn't the wealth of consciousness provide all kinds of costume that is that is quite, that is at that point very powerful and very necessary to survival, right? If I'm a targeted uh, uh, person from Guatemala right now uh, who's here without proper documentation, my response is not going to be, I'm Guatemalan without documentation. I'm going to have to play some sort of game in order to survive, right, in order to not be deported by the Trump administration. So I think there's a kind of privilege built into certain notions of identity politics in which I make that announcement uh, at a moment in which I'm an existential threat. No, I make that announcement when I'm gauged within the university at a, with, a certain kind of, with a certain kind of politics about positions and lines and uh, and, and so on. So I, all I'm saying is that there's an existential level to this that I think sometimes the identity <clears throat> politics might miss. So I think the counter argument, yeah. just to get that out there, would be that those of us in the university with that privilege, which I completely take that point, um, have the responsibility to name that identity to, you know, following Audre Lorde, you know, your silence yeah. will not protect you. Especially if you are African American, Guatemalan. Yeah. I mean, you wear your difference on your yeah. skin. <clears throat> um, so it's the counter argument would be that it's it's up to those of us with privilege to name these identities and therefore have them as political categories in the world that you know in the system that we're living under, in which you do need a political category to attain rights, to attain mm -hmm. uh, identification, to attain even identity. Right, I mean, mm -hmm. to, to exist, it, you need can, to be politicized. Can I Kathleen's just, can, dying to yeah. Well, yes. I'm just, yes. I'm interested mm -hmm. in the possibility yeah. that actually there's there's a third option, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is that maybe both of those things have to be happening at once. And I'm I'm thinking about um, Leonard. In one of your interviews, you talk about you sort of it must have been with Amiri Baraka. You identify a certain aesthetic predicament that you ascribe to the avant garde, which is right, like the avant garde, you know speaks the new and the new gets quickly incorporated and commodified and you have to yes, keep, this keep going. Rocky, yep. mm -hmm. And you um, identify it maybe a little quickly, like with existential predicaments, right? Like mm -hmm. aesthetic predicaments and existential predicaments actually might be different orders of, of course. magnitude and they yeah. may need different responses. I yeah. mean, I don't, I don't yeah. know for sure. I actually can't answer right. this question. So, so, but right. I can say that um, if you think about sort of the, the work of the cultural worker, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. as 
holding open space for a kind of non-reified way of thinking consciousness, mm -hmm. for example, um, and acting in a kind of long game, like mm -hmm. a different game is maybe the wrong way to talk about no, it, but fair. when it's the aesthetic predicament, right. it feels a little more appropriate right. to talk about gaming and costuming. Mm -hmm. And then I think about sort of where where does that predicament become existential and does that require some other response when that response is available, which would be something like in a position of privilege in a place where I can assert my identity and write, um, you know, you don't like queer, I'm queer, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's let's see what that does in right. this space, right? Right. Even, <clears throat> even though what I do don't... do you think it does? You don't like queer, I'm queer. What does that do? <laughs> well, that is just, as a philosopher, a question I would turn right around to you. <laughs> Which I'm going to turn right back to you yeah. as a radio host. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Let's let the poet speak. It, in, okay. the, yeah. in, the, in the interview with Baraka, just to, uh, you know, he's talking about drumming. He's talking about music, uh, drumming during slave days. He's talking about the plantation owner taking the drumming as jungle music. And he's then saying, actually... It's not just a, uh, that, it's also code. It's also we're breaking out of here at 3 a.m. Uh, we've got a canoe. If you've got an extra paddle, meet us down by the river. at. And then the plantation owner who's impervious to all of that just takes it as you know, this primitive, primitive beat, primitive drumbeat, drum right? But, and actually it's a complex, uh, a, a complex communicative system. So it seems to me there are circumstances in which you don't want to announce your positionality, what you're doing, what you're saying. A hermetic poetics, if I can call it that, code, maybe is the better term, uh, uh, has its place. Uh, we're, we're, of course, not in slave days right now, is what you're saying, that there is a necessity to announce, and if you have the privilege to announce, and a necessity to fight back by naming the, the, the identity and so on. Nonetheless, I think within poetry itself, just that we don't want to rule out this possibility, right? We don't want to rule out this situation in which if you're a tiny minority or if you're in outflanked, uh, that within language is the possibility of creating this uh, this camouflage coded way of expressing uh, resistance, right? Without without it becoming as big and bold and as caricature like as Secretary of Defense R. Rumsfeld is in it for the oil, and I sort of make fun of that kind of aesthetic in the passage I read. Uh, it's there, but it's only one kind of possibility, and it's a bit over the top. It's a bit easy uh, to, to caricature uh, one's enemies, or the big, bold kind of assertion of identity, which produces arguably a backlash uh, in its in its uh, in its wake, um, or a backlash in its and in response to it. So. Um, so the Duncan-Levertov argument is interesting, right? Uh, Robert Duncan-Denise Levertov in the 60s, very good friends. Uh, Vietnam War uh, is what breaks up their friendship because Denise Levertov believes that poetry needs to, or as a poet, she needs to respond directly to the war and write a very explicit anti-war poetry that uh, denounces its evil and Robert Duncan, as you cited, uh, or cited Kathleen describing, argues that the poet's task is to imagine evil, not to oppose it. Now, I think implicit in that is the suggestion that if you imagine evil fully, you're going to oppose it more fully, as opposed to uh, as opposed to saying I'm good and you're evil, or the poet is somehow outside the 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 the. the 
the web of evil, uh, denouncing it. No, the poet's within within it and trying to imagine it as fully as he possibly can. And there was a split between the two of them, between an anti-war poetry that Levratov espoused and an imaginatively rich, potentially quite evil poetry that 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 Duncan espoused. Duncan was a teacher of mine, so I'm biased. Uh, uh, but I also think that Duncan's poetry is still very powerful, whereas much of Levertov's poetry from that period reads like propaganda, uh, whereas the the writing from before and the writing from after is is quite fine. It's quite rich. So uh, with Sam Hamill's Poets Against the War during the Iraq War here, uh, Poets Against the War, what a great idea. But there was a moment in which it began to feel like the war against poetry rather than poets against war because there's a simplification that occurs at the level of language. And that very simplification is what is required in order to go to war in the first place. So this would be my counter argument, right? That it's complexity uh, as opposed to populism that is going to produce uh, um, certain forms of resistance and subversive uh, language that that maybe we we can't do without. And I mean, this is also right. Adorno's position about, right, the work of art is always on his account supposed to be complicit, right? It has to, in fact, in order to mime, in order, right, you you have to sort of admit a certain complicity, Mm. um, which also makes me think of Arendt around this question, Mm. right, the idea that um, in order to stand with other people at all, ever in a plurality, right, is to admit some complicity, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that in fact both the criminal and the saint find themselves in the same position, the one who sort of just is calling out and can't – there's no call and response, right? That's yeah. the saint, right? And the criminal has exempted herself, right, entirely yeah. in the other direction and that in order to do something, you have to start from a position of complicity or mixture, right? Um, and I don't know. I mean I think that's a level at which I think sometimes what happens, say, around a kind of campus identity politics yeah. actually feels like an impossible – moment right uh-huh. where a, like there's a gap across which we don't know how to talk to each other because we're not admitting a kind of complicity mm-hmm. right What's with one of my complicity exactly mm-hmm. i mean that um say for example yeah this is a good it's a good yeah. question i mean i'm thinking about the ways in which um This probably isn't isn't quite what I should be thinking. <laughs> Actually, yeah, so now I'm coming up with like faculty meetings. Like, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to. Don't want that on the radio, please. Provincial or local is <laughs> no, that? Know, yeah, no. But yeah. I'm just trying to think like, what does it do when we position ourselves like that with one mm-hmm. another? Um, but I'm also thinking about the multiplicity of voices. For example, that when Leonard, you say, mm-hmm. sort of empty yourself out of yourself as much as possible in order to sort of have other voices speak through you, but then you have to claim them as you are speaking, right? You, they're speaking through you, but by way of your permission, right? So I'm thinking about the way in which a kind of multiplicity, um, like the bombs are falling over there and I'm also here with you. There's always a kind of falling short. I continue my daily life in these ways. Like these poems, I think, particularly evoke moments where the sort of humorous or the daily or the sexual or the, right, all of these things that maybe you're not supposed to be thinking about if bombs are falling anywhere, mm. right. ever, mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, we're all living at all of those levels, right? Simultaneously, there, yeah. And and that's b- both, right, the sort of problem from a kind of moral high ground position, mm-hmm. right? But it's also our capacity to turn to each other at all involves 
that multiplicity, right? That I, I'm, I'm with empirical others. I'm worried about non-empirical others who are either non-empirical because they're way over there or they're already dead, right? Like the sort of disappeared others or the distant others. Anyway, just that we're always sort of moving between all of those things. I think when I say complicity, I don't mean anything okay, particularly to- heinous. I think I mean something more like um, the, the, the sort of muddle and mul- multiplicity that we all are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're saying that the absence of the recognition of that leads to conditions in which we can't talk to each other. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm saying that, yeah. I mean, there's a passage, okay. <laughs> okay. There's a passage in what, uh, you know, I yeah. read or was asked to read where yeah. uh, uh, Octavio Paz is cited, he who sees mm-hmm. with his heart. Yeah. Uh, I happen to know, Dr. Atletawi, that you did your undergraduate thesis <laughs> on Octavio Paz. Uh, so I'm going, I'm going to, you'll, you'll uh, instruct me, but my sense there is that you have a poet who's interested in the transcendental sources of imagination such that he's able to go back into deep sources of pre-Columbian sensibility as a Mexican poet. It isn't that he's a, a, you know, Aztec prince or anything like that. It, It is rather he's able to draw from language and through a certain way of Enheartening the world in his image uh, from 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 uh, foundational sources in 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 a particular psychogeography he happens to live in, right? So that sense of being able to move from uh, language towards assertion on the basis of some energy and language itself that one is as a writer attempting to attune oneself to, uh, as opposed to on the basis of a fixed, fast, and frozen identity that that might might preclude me from discovering certain words. So I'll raise two points here. So one assumption that's made in what you've just said is what you write in the first page of the introduction, language is the source of our humanity. Mm. So that's one assumption being made that, that we can talk That is an assumption, about. yes. Yes. The other, and you know, I'm playing devil's advocate because, of course, of course who wouldn't want to gesture toward these kind of deeper, more subterranean, universal, um, I know universal is usually a dangerous word, but I'm yeah. going to say it. I love that word. <laughs> I cling to, I cling to some sense of universality, but that's another story, but some kind of, you know, um, transcending sense of shared common humanity who wouldn't want to. Um, recognize that in art and bring that out in art. But what worries me, and of course I identify with that and I love that, right? But what worries me is that if we think that that's the entire nature of reality, then I worry, I'll speak for myself, that I'm not being attentive enough to voices that are experiencing structural discrimination, right? And that, and that, that there are actual real material disparities that certain people are experiencing. And I'm speaking for myself as a moral agent, worried that if I don't tune into that, I will miss it and and um, sort of hew to my bias toward universality and uh, shared solutions on the basis of something like the heart. Does sure. that make sense? That makes sense. So that and language is our humanity. You know, I've 
Yeah, no, certainly. If you could just sort that out for, for us here. And, <laughs> I, I, you know. Certainly you're right. One would not want to end up right. in some sort of bourgeois humanism, right? That okay. would not be an attractive place to, to end up. And so the right. notion of the non-self-identical, to come back to that, is the way of saying, uh, as soon as I make a statement of identity, uh, it's, it's going to be able to, it's going to have to contradict itself. The, the nature of Babel, or the nature of language conceived of as Babel, is that it's going to contradict itself. Uh, 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 as the, the statement is always going to be misinterpreted. The comment is always going to come to mean the opposite of what it was tended, intended. In what way, I don't know. That's unpredictable, right? But, but uh, the, to say something about language as being the source of our humanity is to say something about uh, our humanity as being muddled, confused, babbled, uh, contradictory, uh, as opposed to universal, right, uh, at that point, because language is uh, a pleasurable confusion. Uh, or that's the argument of the book. That's a, it's not a work of philosophy where we're trying to the kind of philosophy where you're defining a term and then limiting it to that meaning because tabby el tabia comes to mean tabby. Right? Words are always overflowing their definitions, and uh, uh, and that overflow is seen as desirable here. I don't know if, but 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 certainly I, I certainly I would um, I would not like to end up in a form of bourgeois humanism. In this book, or in any book, uh, um, <laughs> right? And I'm not saying you are, but I'm. I'm just. I'm raising yeah. the questions I always raise with you. Yeah. And so yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. if you think, I mean, you, you, we, we could talk about the idea of Orientalism. We could talk about Edward Said. You know, it is interesting. I, Martin Buber is a is a, a major figure in this book. Um, uh, in terms of language, because it is the idea of dialogue, conversation, uh, words addressed and uh, received that. That are also at work in the idea of the the the, the book, or also in the, uh, work in the idea of language. But Ibrahim Muhawi, the Palestinian translator, tells a fascinating story that uh, when Martin Buber uh, moved into Jerusalem, uh, I don't know the exact year; must have been fought right after the War of Independence or the Nakba in 1948. Uh, he moved into the very house that. Edward Said and his parents were being expelled from, and uh, that there was oh. some kind of exchange between Said's father and Buber, to which he remained entirely impervious. Why are these people complaining? Uh, or what exactly happened? You are blind to the specificity, the particularity, uh, the s- distress of the concrete individual, which is, I think, what you were describing a moment ago, that there's a way in which uh, a, a certain kind of thinking and a certain kind of poetry can sort of also blind you to the particularities. So when Ibrahim Muhawi, who I've had interesting exchanges with and who's said nice things about this book, but when we were talking about Buber a few years back, uh, he's, he pointed that out. It, it's, it, we don't want to get heroic about any particular thinker or figure, uh, was mm-hmm. his suggestion. And uh, whether that story is... I have I've, I've never researched it, but Abraham Mahai has a very interesting account mm-hmm. of Buber and Said. Said as a, as a young as child, and Said's family uh, 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 being uh, losing their home directly really to Martin Buber. Is that published anywhere? This account? I haven't been able to find it. We'll have wow. to ask uh, yeah, Mr. Mahawi. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, I had an exchange with him. He had translated one of Muhammad Darwish's books, right. and there was a quote from Martin Buber. In the book that he, uh, Muhawi, had not been able to find any source for. It was a, a quote that was um, about uh, the Arabs having no claim to, to, to the land whatsoever. 
And I told uh, wrote to Mohawi, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's true. That's antithetical to Uber's position. Uh, and then I'm not a Uber scholar per se, so I contacted the world's great uh, Martin Buber scholar Mendes Flores, Paul Mendes Flores, who teaches at the University of Chicago and Hebrew University, and he also indicated there's no such quote in Buber. There's a false Buber quote floating around wow. in Arabic in the Arab world that Darwish picked up. Wow. And um, so there's Babel at work also, wow. the way in which the language can become confused or purposely or otherwise mistranslated. Mm -hmm. In the course of that exchange with uh, Ibrahim Muhawi, it also, this story about uh, about Buber and, and Saeed came up. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, of course, you're right. You have to mm -hmm. be attentive to concrete potentiality, concrete individuals. question is, not does so poetry do that as well? Not yeah. so much individuals, yeah, but groups. groups. I'm worried about groups. groups. Mm. Like mm -hmm. the Arabs or right. the undocumented. Right. Right. Are you worried about groups? <laughs> I'm worried about groups, but I don't yeah. think poetry is yeah. is I don't think the poet, I don't think poetry okay. is uh, uh, up to that particular task. I don't think poet uh, poetry is a marginal art. Poetry is at the margins of American culture. It's it's not able to uh, uh, for uh, I I wouldn't want to rely on poetry to for to to defend a group. Uh, there are other forms of language, there are other forms of rhetoric, there are other forms of protest, there are other forms of media that are probably, I think, definitely better equipped. I see. Don't you think? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I guess I was going to say this yeah. is where, right, your poetry isn't like the drumming of slaves, right? Right. It, I mean, it yeah. actually has been moved into a kind of useless, uh -huh. right, outer, outer sphere, which right. I think is supposed to then be, right, according to Adorno, the thing yeah. that now reinvigorates it and makes it possibly useful again, mm -hmm. but in this way that you can't be aiming at, right? Yeah. But anyway, that's a complicated argument, but it is right that, I mean, poetry once was, mm -hmm. right, if you think about Homer, right, mm -hmm. the, the way we told and held history, it was the way we told and held our stories about one another. It isn't that in the no. same way now, right? No, well, and we can either tradition. mourn it or we can it celebrate is, yeah. it. What's yeah. that? In, in the Arabic tradition, it is, yeah. And, yeah, mm -hmm. and I was going to say, mm -hmm. it probably depends partly on your positionality then also, yeah. right? As in, right? Yes. Like, where yeah. are you, right? Yeah. And what what form does... I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, you mentioned Audre Lorde talking yeah. about poetry isn't a luxury for, I think, in, in that, for, for women in that uh -huh. essay and for black people, right? That there's yeah. something... I mean, she, she's yeah. making a claim that your positionality, right, depends on... But I, I don't There's know how also that, that question, here. right? Like access to poetry, access yeah. to the world of poetry. I mean, I don't right. necessarily want to get into that, but yeah. it's a question, right? Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> poetry is at yeah. least very cheap. Exactly. Like, right? yes. All you need is a notebook and a pen. <laughs> yes. When I was in, it doesn't uh, pay well either, from pay. what I hear. But yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. When I was in, for, for example, when I was in uh, on a uh, uh, Russia in '97 and '99, on a there was a grant that allowed a bunch of American poets to go to. to to Russia, and uh, it was a, a great period in Russian poetry. Why? Because the economy was so awful that um, I mean, Russia is a, the the Russians greatly value poetry, right? It's it's a, a prestigious art. The only reason you wouldn't write poetry is because you can't make a living. But since you couldn't make a living anyhow. <laughs> Everyone, uh, you Super might as well lying. write poetry. All you need is a notebook and a pen. So I met a nuclear mm -hmm. physicist who. Mm, you know, hadn't been paid for six months. He was working, therefore, as a 
teacher. That hadn't paid. She was working as a night watchman in the hotel I was at. And that paid. Uh, but he was also writing poetry since his research had been defunded. So it's at that moment of extreme hmm. uh, poverty that that the poem, because its uh, physical accoutrement is so light, uh, uh, that it becomes uh, that it becomes uh, an open possibility. And why sometimes smaller Eastern European and other countries uh, produce these extraordinary poets because of the the, the the deprivation. In American culture, we have TV, we have the web, we have you know these endless forms of screen and light to which we're attracted like moths, and we have all kinds of other forms of entertainment as well. Poetry is kind of a marginal activity, uh, and but but then within that margin, you have a great deal of freedom about what you can do. You have a great deal of freedom about what kind of voices you can hear. Um, I don't want to say, though, that it's only that. I want to offer another example as well, a poet I'm very interested in, uh, uh, Raul Zorite, who is a Chilean poet uh, that I think about a lot and uh, admire quite a bit. Zorita is a poet um, who survived the 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 Pinochet regime, uh, the era of the of the disappeared, and he uh, um, he'll write like in a book like Inri, he'll write a poetry that at first sounds very much like it's nature poetry. It's a poetry of the Landscape of Chile, the 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 mountains and the volcanoes and the Atacama Desert and the ocean, and he's invoking the mountains and the volcanoes and the desert and the ocean. And at a certain point, as he's invoking that landscape, you suddenly realize he's also invoke, invoking the people who were dropped into the volcanoes and into the desert and into the mountains and into the ocean. And unlike the Nazis, the Chileans didn't document much. The disappeared are truly disappeared. There's no uh, historical work uh, a documentarian can do. Uh, no, it's going to be have to be the poet in some truly Orphic sense who's going to evoke the voices of the dead uh, from, uh, from those volcanoes and from those desert, that desert and from that, that ocean. Furthermore, uh, Zorita, who was tortured during that period, has Parkinson's disease, perhaps brought on by what was done to his nervous system. So when he reads, he ha he has no control, very little control over his body, which is twitching, but the voice is absolutely present, and it creates this illusion or it creates this reality that it is in fact the voices of the dead that are speaking through him, the voices of the disappeared. Now, from a strictly empirical sense of positionality, he shouldn't be able to do that because the dead are the dead and he's alive. But it is function the function of the poet, going back to Orpheus, is to go back to the underworld, is to go into the underworld and speak for the dead when you come back up. And Zorita does that in an utterly persuasive way for the Chilean left, um, uh, the, almost the entire Chilean left, which was dropped into volcanoes and oceans and deserts uh, uh, in a way that is plausible and powerful and, and, and moving. If we close down the space in which it's possible for the imaginative act of the poem to, to do that kind of work, there's a terrible, terrible loss, right? Uh, I've always thought the problem with the formulation that uh, we should stop reading dead white males is it's only in a Western progressive tradition an ideologically 
directed Western progressive tradition that saying someone is dead is pejorative. Actually, uh, in, in, in Chinese ancestor worship and Haitian voodoo, and, and I could go on and on and on, the dead are very present. The dead are made present through acts of language Perhaps on the basis of— Perhaps isn't that adjective uh, isn't the one that is meant, isn't the— but I'm just you saying. Know? I'm just saying the, the dead. If I dead read Plato, yeah, we we, we go, have from. to go on to talk yeah. about the other adjectives. <laughs> but all I'm just taking on dead. We can agree. I'm on just talking about the, dead here, right? That particular adjective, okay. right? Yes. And so, okay. so Zorita is a poem for whom Zorita is a poet yeah. whom is able to invoke invoke that sense of the the, the mm. classical function of the poet. Even if just three people hear that poem, that creates that sense of well. The, the the presence of these people who Pinochet thought were disappeared mm. and now they're still present. So there's a political efficacy to the Orphic. And and I, if I hear you right, you're making a sort of larger claim. That's a very specific mm. scenario and there's a larger claim to be made about sort of language as the place where our dead gather, right? Who did yeah. we inherit language from? That's right. Who made yeah. language? Well, how were we born into it? Right. And yeah. in some ways, all all of the past, right, are disappeared in that I mean, right, we had generation upon generation. Um, of course, your book raises the question about sort of disappeared by what? Right. Is, right, like violence as yeah. sort of the far extreme of a kind of communication that makes people disappear. Anyway, I, I, yeah. that's something I've been thinking about in, in rereading the book. Um, Do you have any thoughts, Kathleen, as someone who's, who lives with really four dead white men? In your work, as you describe, I mean, do you have thoughts on this question at all that you or <laughs> that would be or, Hegel, or do you want to take a pass? Freud and right. Kant, right, yeah. right, right, yeah. Do you want to take a pass? I mean, if you have <laughs> the sense thoughts. in which I'm poly, and you are That's not, what I'm well, like, yeah. it's me and my four for the audience, right. yeah. Yeah. that you know, so no, yeah, not yet. Well, I, yeah, you will never be a dead <laughs> white man. I'm yeah. Right. High praise. Thank you. Are you persuaded by my argument against the the pejorative use of the word "dead" in the formulation "dead"? Yes, what I'm persuaded is? by okay. that argument. Okay. It's okay. the we yeah. just didn't talk about the right. two more controversial right. adjectives. Right. So I mean, just, just so long dead, as dead, as long as, long as we can salvage the dead, I, I actually be, totally actually, agree with yeah, that. And yeah. I mean, as a yeah, as an intellectual historian, I agree yeah. with that. I think, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's yeah. actually very perceptive and. Mm -hmm. I I tend to think about the white and the men part more than the dead part, but mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. is important, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. about the, the dead presentism bias is. I think a, about a the problem. dead yeah. part much more mm -hmm. than I think about the white male part. I mm -hmm. think. I mean, interesting. I've been mm -hmm. right. I've been in great conversations lately about how do you how do you open up philosophy, which is a really traditionally sort of dead white male preoccupation, I guess. Yeah. Right, like that's. All the people doing it are dead white and male. <laughs> well, I don't have much on the male, but on the white, I can say, you know, we've all read Black Athena. We have all know Martin Bernal's assertion. We all know that the Mediterranean world predates the invention of Europe, the invention of Africa, and the invention of Asia, right? If we're talking about the Homeric world, or even the period of Greek, the invention of philosophy in, in Greece, we're, uh, we're uh, so to speak, we're, we're talking about something that predates the invention of black, white, or Asian, or those particular kind of identities. So uh, it's a historical anachronism to talk about St. Augustine, say, is European. He was born in North Africa. Oh, yeah, he's an African. Right, he's an African, right? That Mediterranean world does not distinguish between Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's before that. So philosophy has its roots in, in a Mediterranean world, which is pre the racial categories we use now, then you can argue that that philosophical tradition is 
is uh, mulatto, or you can argue that that philosophical tradition is hybrid, or that philosophical tradition is uh, it's anachronistic to look at it uh, that way. Uh, Freud, is Freud white? The Nazis didn't think he was white, right? And he was right, one of the four true. guys you, you've got, you know, you're living with. And, and Marx was Marx, right. Right, right, right. Before, right. before he wasn't. So it, it's right. just more complicated than that kind yeah. of narrow identity politics. Well, who are we so, talking about then? Maybe we're talking about Andrew Jackson and we're yeah. talking about, I mean, I know. suspect we're talking about Kant and Hegel also, and right? Hegel Protestants for sure. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Although, of course, I mean, there's, yeah, I, I will wander into terrible territory if I go too go far ahead. in this direction, but I'm yes. thinking about, right, I worked with um, Jay Bernstein, who teaches now at the New School, and he was at Vanderbilt when I was there, and I studied Kant's moral theory with him, and I remember him making a claim. He made it actually kind of all the time, right? We're all Protestants now, right? And he was saying that, of course, <laughs> as a Jewish New Yorker, right? Like, yeah. right? And he's like, I'm, I'm Protestant Jewish, right? Like, you can't, there's something, right? It was something about the sort of logic of capital, for example, something right? Right. Becoming yeah. the dominant logic means like first and foremost, whether or not we know it, we're all white male Protestants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then after that, we're, we're all of these other things. I yeah. mean, and that was, of course, a provocative way to As say the great it. Poet Magid Zahar put it. Uh, I came to Egypt, excuse me, I came to Seattle as a confused Egyptian and I left a Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. He yeah. did leave Seattle recently. Yeah, right? he, he did. Moved to Atlanta. Hello, yeah. Megan. Yes, he did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As but, a Norwegian. Right. But as I've said to <laughs> yeah. Megan, and I've, uh, you know, I've known, uh, known him and list, watched the development of his poetry over 13, 14, 15 years, is when he reads his work, the vocabulary is English and the rhythmical structures are remain Arabic, right? Mm. That this is a poet this is a good example of a poetry that does this work of babble by which new language formations come into being, right? Working with an English language vocabulary and a rhythmical structure that remains rooted in Arabic poetic traditions, uh, to my ear. Um, and and so that's a great example to bring up the, the kind of work mm-hmm. of language, which may not save him from getting um, uh, profiled when he tries to fly to Atlanta when he goes to the airport. There's no question you're right about that, but is producing a cultural work, a cultural product, a, a, a body of work, a, a kind of writing, which is subtly undermining Subtly undermining the 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 reified sense of Arabic and English being for those enemies. who read it for those Absolutely. who read, for the limited number of people yeah. who read poetry, of course, yeah. of course. So, believe it or not, we've actually been speaking now for over an hour. Mm. Um, can I ask you an ending question? Of course. Okay, because this show is called Contemporary Islam Considered. And so, I mean, I've loved this interview, but I'm wondering if you can link it to contemporary Islam. Yes, I was wondering if we would get to that <laughs> at, at one point because it is. I, I see many links, yeah, you yeah, know, and I'll yeah. let the audience link for themselves. But if you had ending thoughts, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I should go for that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the 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 uh, much of the work in this book was written during the Bush administration, and now we find ourselves in the Trump administration under the Trump administration back in a position again, where very visibly in American culture. Uh, there's uh, rampant Islamophobia, right? And then the question becomes, uh, as a writer, uh, as a citizen, what kinds of things one does to counter that? Um, So, you know, 
with this talk of a Muslim registry, uh, myself and others said, well, we'll register as Muslims if such a thing comes to pass, right? Uh, what kinds of linguistic structures, uh, books, uh, ideas can one discuss and promulgate that are going to produce the greatest possible uh, flexibility such that when these, if such a thing comes to pass, we'd have the maximum number of people willing to register as Muslims, even though they're Protestants, or even though they're Jews, or even though they're Hindus, or even though they're Buddhists, right? Does that, is that going to be, is that kind of defense, is that kind of resistance going to be best um, uh, promulgated uh, through a certain kind of identity politics, as I think you were arguing, Sarah, or is that kind of... I was musing. Or as you were musing, <laughs> musing. or as I was musing, yeah. uh, or as the muse suggests to me, is it going to be through a certain kind of flexibility of form on the basis of which uh, experiences I didn't think I had access to, suddenly I do have access to, through some slate of hand of language or through some uh, structure of language that makes that makes uh, the imagination of an experience possible. So in terms of contemporary Islam isn't entirely this negative circumstance, but because we feel under threat uh, at this moment when you ask me about contemporary Islam and here we are in the age of Trump uh, wondering what's coming next, uh, uh, I think about it immediately uh, in, in those terms. Okay, Kathleen. I, I think all I can really add <laughs> at this point is that I've, I'm interested in all of those possibilities. I'm still mm -hmm. wondering if there are situations in which the defensive gesture is to claim the identity, right? Yeah. And and also sort of, right? Your suggestion was that we might all claim the identity, which is something that I'm I'm certainly interested in, right. and yet. Mm -hmm. Also, you don't want to lose the specificity of sort of who, who stands under greatest threat. How do we make people who stand under the greatest threat visible, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's your question, yeah. Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think, right, there's sort that's of cultural right. work and then there's political work and there's work at the barricades. I don't know if the same people can do all the kinds of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I've often said – Right. Yeah, right. and I've often said, right, like I think I'd be a Dorno. I wouldn't have no. joined the students at the barricade. I'm yeah. I'm slow, right? I'm a reader, right? Um, I'm yeah. I'm a slow reader also, right? <laughs> All of those things are true. And yeah. the fact is like whenever I'm protesting, I'm weeping, which is yeah. just not helpful to anybody's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? The masses of people make me terribly yeah. upset. Right? Really? <laughs> right? Just yeah. in general. Yeah. Oh yeah, even basketball games, yeah. right? If there's a surprise applause that makes its way through the yeah. crowd. You'll, I'm instinctively terrified. I'm yeah. terrified. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Let's. Well, I think. Yeah. This. I'm sure. But, it's about, I think okay. it's about fascism. I mean, I yeah. actually think wow, I'm, really? that my fear. Right. Maybe you know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this it, is like it's contextual too. I mean, the the Egyptian poet Muhammad Metwali is someone mm -hmm. I'm, I've always been interested in, and who purposefully writes a, a kind of flat prose poetry uh, on the grounds he says that there's a hyperbolic quality to Quranic uh, Arabic that translates into a hyperbolic quality to the lyric poetry he sees being written that he wants to undermine. Uh, so there's a necessarily flat kind of writing, not fiery, not uh, hyper-expressive, not flame-throwing, uh, but flat and, and, and sort of anti-declarative, which he felt 
I haven't spoken with him recently, but he felt was necessary in his cultural circumstance in Mubarak era uh, Egypt. Um, so mm. what a writer does in a given cultural circumstance, when we talk about contemporary Islam, that's obviously a huge <laughs> a huge set of circumstances. And uh, just simply, I was responding with the particular identity of an American poet, an American writer, thinking about Islamophobia, thinking about Islam in American culture, what kinds of, thing one, what kinds of things one does with language without uh, pretending to someone else's identity at the same point, uh, not shirking the, the imaginative work of, 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 of Islam's presence as part of a, a linguistic and cultural landscape that shapes who one is as a writer and a poet. Thank you. This has been really fun. And uh, thanks for your book, Leonard. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and, and uh, talking about the book with me. It was really my pleasure. And thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, thanks to both of you. This was great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. And we're going to sign off for now.